The Apostle Paul left his young protege, Titus, on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing biblically qualified pastors in every town. He writes Titus with instructions on how to do this and how to build a healthy church that can impact the world for the gospel. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus entitled, Finish the Work. The purpose of the book of Titus really, uh, right from the beginning, he said, I'm writing to you, young man, his young pastoral protege, to finish up the mission work there on the island of Crete, to oust those false teachers who were poisoning the churches with their crazy ideas and establish in their place biblically qualified men of God who could pastor quote, in every town there on Crete. And so there would be men of sound doctrine. Doctrine means teaching the essentials of the gospel. They would be men with godly character, not like the false teachers, men who would say no to ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age as they wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and teach others to do the same. Uh, That is the gist of the book of Titus. And so now it's time to conclude the letter. And he does so in the same fashion he began. If you recall, he opened the letter Uh, coming out swinging against the false teachers who were so very dangerous to every Christian on the island of Crete. Uh, He came out swinging, you know, saying, hey, they're living up to their bad reputation of being liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. He said they're detestable and they're unusable for any good thing. Man, that's uh, them's fighting words, right? (laughs) And so he's going to close out with a parting shot. That's exactly the last thing uh, in exhortation in the book of Titus is a parting shot to remind everybody the dangers of false teaching and divisive people along those lines. We have to be very, very careful. Let me show you what I'm talking about. And here's the concluding paragraph. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, uh, the Old Testament, because these are unprofitable and useless, which is really the whole point of Titus, what is profitable and useful. Warn a divisive person once, verse 10 says, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him you may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. So he uh, wasn't pulling any punches when he opened the letter, nor is he closing the letter uh, holding anything back. And why? Because it is the truth that saves us. And in fact, um, the Bible says, 
um, Paul tells Timothy, another young pastoral protege, he said, watch your life and your doctrine closely. By doing so, you will save the Greek word sozo, both you and your hearers. So by watching your truth and making sure it lines up with the Bible's truth and not the world's poisonous influences, you will sozo yourself and your congregation, those who listen to you. Sozo means to be, de- to be rescued from harm and danger, to be delivered, uh, and also to be um, healed, to be brought into a place of wholeness. So yeah, it, you, you know, they're fighting words because there's something very important on the line. And so we're going to talk about this paragraph. This paragraph really is it before us, some life-saving advice in verse 9, some unpleasant duties in verse 10, and the sad, sad consequences of some who stray from the truth, verse 11. But the happy news is, is that nobody can stray too far from the gracious hand of a loving God. Amen. So we're going to take a look at these uh, truths here in this short, brief, concise paragraph. And uh, it's a timeless message because from the dawn of time, from the dawn of time, God's truth has been revealed. In the Old Testament, in the early chapters, you have false prophets trying to pervert the truth of God and mislead the people of God and to thwart the Lord's plans, right? And so it's a message that we need to hear because the danger never goes away because the enemy is inbound until Christ returns and one of the most uh, strategic tools in his toolbox is false teaching and every wind of doctrine that blows constantly throughout time and memorial. So... We're going to take a look at first, um, as I've been saying. I mean, he's going to say, here's who they are, here's what they're teaching, and here's what you need to do about it, right? So let's begin with that life-saving advice in verse 9. So I do want to kind of continue the thought that I've begun here by giving you some foundational ways of thinking of why the Bible uh, can sound so harsh because uh, people who hear these words today would say, uh, how Christian is that to uh, avoid somebody and, and have nothing to do with them? And so to understand why Jesus can be so harsh sometimes with words and why the uh, three quarters of the New Testament takes such a, a uh, uncompromised stance with those who willfully reject the truth and are bent on influencing others to do the same, why the New Testament takes such um, pains to speak in such um, surprising and, and serious and sober ways. So, well, uh, as I've been saying, the truth is what sets us free, so you can't mess with the truth. And, and peace, listen, uh, there can be no peace biblically when there are lies and falsehoods about God and evil behavior and deceptions going on and they're unidentified 
and unrestrained and undealt with. How can you have peace with that? So until the threat to unity and peace is dealt with and uh, identified, you cannot have true biblical peace. And that's why the Bible is like zero tolerance on the things that uh, make peace impossible, right? And so that is why the Prince of Peace He came to make peace by first reconciling men to himself, and he offers that peace to the world. He came to reconcile to himself all things by making peace throughout, uh, through his blood shed on the cross. So we have access to God, no longer estranged, and have hostility between us and him, and between us who are in the Lord in the truth. He has destroyed that enmity between us. So God's heart is all about peace, right? But it's not peace at any cost, as you see. It's not peace at any cost. It's truth at any cost. We stand for and protect and guard uh, the truth. And sometimes that gets messy, i.e. verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3 of Titus and so many other places in the New Testament. And so Christianity, just getting started here, if some of you are like uncomfortable because of these harsh words, Christianity is not for the faint of heart. And Jesus did not uh, fail to give us a heads up on the nature of Christianity. Take a look at his words in Matthew chapter 10. Don't suppose for a moment that I came to bring peace to the earth, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn, and now he's quoting Micah chapter 7 and verse 6, to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. If that's what it takes, verse 36, a man's enemy, sadly, with great Sadness in his voice and brokenheartedness, uh, uh, he, he would know, too, uh, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who now, you better take this in and digest it, my followers, and now a word to take heart. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than the truth of the gospel or the waves it'll create or than me and the problems it will generate at the table or at work or whatever, you're not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter and allows the truth to be compromised so that you can have peace is not worthy of me. But instead, who, who, who you need to pick up your cross and follow him to be worthy of the gospel. Uh, who, whoever finds their life and has this peace will lose it, and whoever loses their life, and you're going to get a little strife in there for my sake, will find it. That's what he's saying there. Uh, we can go back to the text. David Guzik, who spoke yesterday, I was reading uh, his sermon notes, and here's what he said about this passage. He said, the message of Jesus clearly is a message of peace. Check out the Sermon on the Mount. Yet, Since it calls the individual to a radical commitment to Christ himself, it's a message of peace that divides between those who choose it and those who reject it. Our Lord lets us know 
that we imagine, and we imagine with great sadness, that the dividing line between those who accept the truth and those who reject the truth would even run through our families, our friends, and here in Titus, the church fellowship. And so that's what's going on with the foundation of why Paul will call people out and use such descriptive terms. It's not Paul's problem. It's the Holy Spirit's desire to protect the work of Christ, which he bought with his own blood. And so we stand for truth. And by uh, the way we do that is to avoid the foolish theology and nonsense of that which opposes truth. Let's take a look at this first uh, admonition, this life-saving advice. To avoid, to avoid. Uh, it's a strong word. It means to make about face. So if you picture a soldier hearing uh, a command, about face, and you see him, that's the word he uses when it comes to four things. Foolish controversies, genealogies, in this case on Crete, foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, he says, and quarrels about the Bible, the Old Testament, in this case. Um, And so I want to say, first of all, we are not talking about having difficult conversations. We're not talking about sincere questions or people who want clarity because they're confused spiritually. We are called to engage this culture and to do it with kindness, with, with skill, with diplomacy, and uh, with a good command of the scriptures. And so we have to be able to engage and, and, and debate in kindness. And he's not talking about that. He's asking us to ask the question, is the person's heart open or closed? Are they teachable? Or have they already made up their mind? <laughs> have they got an axe to grind? Is there an ulterior motive? Have they already decided? And are they trying now to help you make the same decision they have made? Warren Wiersbe said when he was younger that he wasted a lot of time. He said, when I was inexperienced, uh, people would sidetrack me who would love to argue, professed Christians, who love to argue about the Bible. So he said, I often found that they were really covering up some kind of sin or they were unfulfilled uh, or unhappy either at home or at work or some other problem. And he said, I wish I could tell now younger pastors to be able to discern what is a genuine question and a, a, a genuine struggle from somebody who's seeking truth from somebody who's got an ax to grind and is divisive and likes to argue as a distraction and a red herring. A red herring was used to throw uh, dogs of competitor, competitors uh, in the hunting days uh, to throw the, the dogs off track. So they'd run a herring across the trail. So to mislead or to deceive, we have to understand, is that what's going on with the so-called I have some questions? So these foolish controversies are just that. 
foolish. That is what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, conversations that are irrelevant, distractions that breed only doubt and more confusion. The process he calls is um, foolish. The Greek word there is moros, where we get the word, brace yourself, moron. <laughs> that's what the word is. And I looked it up, and that's the word it used. And it, it said moron slash stupid. <laughs> the Greek lexicon, page 111. All right, so he says, do not wrangle about these things. I think we should dive in to what a foolish controversy is. It is really dumb because it's a waste of time. It's wrangling about words. Uh, they've already decided what they've decided. And so the conversation goes around and around and around. And he says, that's not the kind of thing that is worth your time. It's not profitable. This is the theme of Titus. It's not profitable. And it's not useful. So do not do it. Sidestep it. Don't take the bait. Well, social media is a great place to exercise spiritual discernment when the hook comes down and the worm is doing the hula on there, you know, about something that is going to generate a lot of division and nastiness. Avoid that. You do a lot better avoiding it and praying about it and then saying nothing and directing your words that way instead of this way, amen? amen. That's what he's talking about. It's the red herrings. Let me give you a quick example of what a foolish controversy could be. Uh, and, and the Lord blessed my poking around about it. Um, there was a... A man who I had been sharing the gospel. He'd been coming to church. Uh, it was back at the community center in Sebastopol. He'd been coming uh, to the church for a while. And I had been sharing the gospel with him. He was very hostile. He said, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I'm total atheism, whatever. And so uh, he was hanging out by the door as I was le leaving one Sunday morning. And I said, hey, you want to talk? And he said, yeah, sure, whatever. And I said, so what, what is it? What's holding you back? He said, oh, a lot of this, this, that, the other thing. And then he said, what about people who've never heard? What about the pygmies? And so I said... First of all, it's always the pygmies. <laughs> I said to him, I said, are you using the pygmies as a distraction so that you don't have to deal with the command that Jesus wants to be Lord of your life and you'll have to give up certain sins and obey him and be morally accountable to him? Or do you really care about the pygmies? And he said... I do not care about the pygmies. And he started crying, and I led him to the Lord. Yeah. Now, I wish I could tell you that happens all the time, <laughs> but I don't remember such a dramatic turnaround ever happening like that so wonderfully. But just call him on the carpet, sir, come on. It's just the, the, you know, there's a million of those things. Why did God let this terrible thing happen? And why did he do that? And sometimes they're sincere, but other times it's the red herring has crossed the trail. Genealogies, you would think, well, you know, we don't have problems with that today. 
Oh, yeah, we do. It's still going on 2,000 years. Let me explain it. Now, he said, sidestep the genealogical thing, all right? He's not belittling um, important genealogies that are given in the Bible. God uses them. They're everywhere, in, uh, even in the New Testament, uh, to establish priesthood and kings. And we even see how Jesus comes from Adam all the way through to Mary in Luke chapter 3 and through Joseph's stepfather, even though we didn't need it, God did it because he's not biologically related to Joseph, uh, but uh, he's uh, David, it, it, he is related to David in the genealogy. And Matthew chapter 1 shows that. He's not talking about that. Here's what these heretical Hebrews these were, were Jewish false teachers in this case. And what they were doing were counting the letters in these Jewish names and finding hidden meanings in codes, secret codes. And then, uh, in fact, today, 2,000 years later, we were doing the same thing out there. All, it's, it's alive and well. It's called the Bible code. In Hebrew, it's called Hatsufen Hatanach, and it's called the Torah code. Let me show you a picture of what they do. They count, they come up with certain numbers that they deem uh, significant, and they, they count, and then they circle. Now, this is just a text in Genesis, but they're counting, right? And they're counting, and they come up, and then they circle all of these, and they come up with a message. All right, that's exactly what they were doing 2,000 years ago on Crete. That he says, you know what? Just read the text. Just read the text. There's a meaning right there. Just read the actual Hebrew. There's nothing behind the text. But if you don't like what the simple plain meaning of the text is, then of course you're gonna be open for the true meaning of the words, and then you can get out of what the meaning is that you don't like the unpleasant call to moral accountability and that there's one God and it's not you. And, and so when, when you're sad about that, then you're, you're counting numbers and uh, making all kinds of connections that way. He says you best not do that. Um, Paul's saying just uh, read the text. You can go back to... Uh, the verses, yeah. So we don't take our cues from Leonardo da Vinci's painting. He, uh, really? No. <laughs> no, 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 I don't know if you know about the da Vinci Code, come on. I, I mean, we're still doing it. And, and it's blasphemous, it just leads to, to, yeah. You don't need to talk to anybody about did Leonardo leave us some information that Mary Magdalene was actually married to Jesus because that is blasphemous. He is God, the son. And Mary Magdalene is a Bible hero. And Satan hates both of them. So he says, sidestep that. Do not waste your time or your breath on that because it is two things. It is unprofitable and useless. 
And there are a few other adjectives that he's leaving out, I'm sure. Arguments, number three there in your verse nine. And just as a quick word that means strife. And so he says, avoid strife. Have the wisdom to know when we've gone from a intense debate that still is reasonable and manageable uh, to strife, to clashing. And, and now blood pressure is rising and maybe the tone is less Christian and less kind. Avoid that in your marriages, in your families, at work. This is a general exhortation. Sidestep, get out of it when it becomes heated. When, when, when the courtesy level is diminished down and the profanity level starts to tempt itself to exit your brain and then your mouth. Step out of the conversation. Know when you need to do that. No, <laughs> fun, interesting little thing that just happened to me about three days ago. I'm taking a little walk around my neighborhood and I passed an open door with a big man standing, fending off two Jehovah's Witness women at the door. I'm walking past the encounter and I see him and he's listening to them and I look at him and he looks at me and I said, don't do it. <laughs> I said, Jesus is God. And he goes, I got this brother. <laughs> and so I walk up to the driveway and I just kind of, you know, said, is it okay, you know? And they both looked at me like, everybody looked at me like, yeah, whatever. And I'm standing there and he's like, listen, she's like, well then, if he's God, who raised him from the dead? And the guy says, the father raised him from the dead, but he raised himself from the dead as well. And then I said, yeah, in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this body, and I will raise it back to life because I have the authority to do it. And he looked at me like, <laughs> and that we went back and forth, back and forth. But then she, said, she became closed. I don't want to hear what the verse says. So he said, okay, so, and he was very kind and had a great command of the scriptures. And he said very kindly, well, then I guess this conversation can't go forward if you're closed. And she said, I am closed. And so she turned and took her young um, mentee with her and off they went. And I said, bro, you were phenomenal. You're, you're a pastor. And he said, no, I've been a layman, but I studied with uh, Jehovah's Witnesses to, uh, to, to learn from 1972. And I've been doing it as a hobby. Uh, <laughs> I said, you were phenomenal. I said, I prefer arguing with Mormons myself. And then, <laughs> I, I do. And then I said, well, what, what's your name? And he said, Stu. And uh, I know some of you know him because he goes and I said, where do you go to church? He said, where do you go to church? And I said, I go to The Rock. And he goes, oh, The Rock. And I said, before you say a word, <laughs> I'm also the pastor of The Rock. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what, what he did? He sensed when the conversation was over and we needed to now avoid 
this foolishness of going round and round. If Jesus was actually Michael the archangel, it's time to sidestep that one. And then fourthly, it says here, um, sidestep the strife and then the quarrels about the Old Testament. And so the law, (laughs) one writer said, isn't it funny that the ancients nicknamed the Old Testament God's law and not God's suggestions? You see, they they got it. This is God speaking, therefore we're going to call it the law. And so they had it right there, the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. <laughs> so many Jews were converting to Judaism, and coming out of Judaism was a complicated thing. You know, Jesus called it, he said, Hey, uh, Judaism is like a, a, a robe that really you've worn for 1500 years because they had. It's time to get a new robe. And it's a wineskin that was 1500 year old wineskin. He said, It's stretched out. I got some new wine here. You pour it in that one, bam, you're going to, it can't hold Christianity and new life and being born again. And so coming out of that, those Jewish, those Jewish believers are like, well, can we eat anything? And Jesus said, yeah, you can. Oh, I, I, I don't think so. And so that's okay too. If you don't want to eat it, you can. Because those things were pointing to pictures and had regard to holiness matters and those kinds of things. And so what this means in your verse 9, wrapping up verse 9, is that uh, the Jewish false teachers were all into, you can't eat that. And, and what are you doing on the Sabbath? Oh, you can't do that. And so they made a controversial lists of what you can do and what you couldn't do. And he says, you know what? Stop talking about that. It, it's a big Waste of time. So as I said, sincere questions, genuine confusion, always welcomed by God. But obsessive, opinionated, unbiblical wrangling, God would call foolishness. And it goes on today. You know the wrangling, secular music. Is it okay? Can we have Santa Claus in the house at Christmas you know, uh, was Jesus really born in December? Uh, the Lord says, you know what? Just smile, nod, and uh, pass the french fries and change, <laughs> and change the subject. Um, okay, so to sum up, let's dodge the fruitless, divisive conversations that do more harm than good and uh, move forward with the business at Hand. Now, to the unpleasant duty of verse 10. Don't step on the mind, but do warn the man. Warn a divisive person, your text says, follow me in verse 10 once, and then warn him a second time. This isn't like legalistic, one, two, done, you know, but he's saying, give him some time. After that, have nothing to do with him. And then, you know, I can just hear somebody, how Christian is that? I would answer, Very, sadly, but very. Now, here's a commandment of the Lord. So Titus and Timothy are all would-be pastors. They've already received their marching orders about this kind of thing. Let me show you uh, the unpleasant duty of ministers and sometimes mature Christians and moms and dads and bosses and, and the like. These then... 
Titus are the things you should teach earlier in the book. Encourage, rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody despise you because you have to do those two things. And then he said to Timothy, who he left in Ephesus doing the same kinds of work, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, just there 24-7, you're ready to go. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Negative, negative, positive. Two-thirds of what he tells him his ministerial job is, is uncomfortable, awkward, and the fun part with great patience and careful instruction. You can leave that up for just a couple more uh, moments. Okay, so admonishing or warning is something that every pastor will answer to God for because we clearly can read and we have been trained, we have been through seminary, and I plainly know what this text is telling me to do, that I can't let... Um, anybody who would despise me for correcting them stand in my way of saying, in love, in love, with great humility, with a broken heart and maybe some tears and maybe a whole lot of prayer because that's the whole context. You don't just pull out the guns and start theologically shooting. Your heart's broken. You pray. You, you've done bent over backwards, doing kind things and helping them in practical needs, and all of these things. But at the end of the day, if somebody's clinging to something that's not a lifeboat, they think is a lifeboat, and it's going to drown them, then it's your job, pastor, to say this is false. This is going to hurt you. Let me show you. Let me help you identify the false thing, and let me help you to be persuaded to replace the false thing with the right thing so that you can be saved. And so that is just, there's no getting out of that. Now, so here's one definition here. To reason with patience prayerfully and with kind respect and by the scriptures to point out the error, make the truth clear, explain the consequences of wrong thinking and bad behavior by contrasting them with the benefits of biblical beliefs. And that's what he's asking him to do now. You can go back to our text now. So admonishing the least enjoyable of all the ministerial uh, duties, and as I've often said, if you like to confront people, uh, you should not be confronting people. Um, <laughs> Because it's unpleasant. And so uh, we do try to get people to see the error of their ways because they're in danger. So, uh, I mean, how valuable is it for somebody to say, bro, listen, you're on a path. You don't know this. The bridge is out. That's profitable. Oh, no, no, no. I've taken this road a million times or whatever. You know, it's not well received a lot of times. But uh, there's love. And, and my friends, it is not loving to enable a person to go down a path that ends in destruction. That is the, what the world wants you to do. Put away your negative talk and encourage and accept everybody for everything. And love just covers a multitude of sins 
in the wrong way of understanding that. It's not loving to let your kids play in the freeway without admonishing them. It really isn't. And so he says, when you see your kids playing in the freeway and stepping out and jaywalking, because they're not staying in the lane of sound doctrine that can sozo their souls, then you as a shepherd and overseer, that's what the word means, overseeing. It's my job to say, hey, the lane, you're crossing the lane. Why are you crossing the lane? Are you just sincerely confused? Because I'll sit down and I'll help you with that. But no, I want to cross the lane and crossing the lane is right. And I need other people to cross the lane to free them up because they've been bound in this narrow, tight, restricted way. Oh, my friend. Now, I have to warn you because you're a danger not only to yourself. If you want to cross into oncoming traffic, then that is your business. I'll do everything in my power to stop you. But if you're going to go to people that I love and care about, and I'm called by God to protect from people like you, sadly, then I must have nothing to do with you. But do you get the why? I hope you get the why. So who is this divisive person? Warn this divisive person. Well, it's not just false teachers. You can be divisive and not be theologically minded in this sense. A divisive person is somebody who, through their behavior or through their talking, and for whatever reason, they want to spin somebody away from what's right and good, a relationship that's right and good, a pastor that's right and good for that person, or truth. They want to bring up the controversy. They want to plant the seed. They want them to be as unsettled as they are about a certain truth. And so this is the divisive person. The King James has factious or heretikos is the Greek word for heretic. The word heretic simply once meant to choose, but it became uh, a, a kind of a uh, nickname for those who would choose truth outside of the Bible. So if you choose truth outside the Bible, then you were, you were called back in the day a heretic. Here's John MacArthur on the Greek. To choose one's own opinion over biblical truth are these divisive people. A divisive person will not submit to the word or to godly leadership in the church. He or she is a law unto themselves and have no concern for the spiritual truth or the unity of the church or the well-being of the person they are speaking to. And so you have to warn them. Now, the most disconcerting thing about it for me, about being a divisive person, is that the Bible says in the Old Testament, in the prophets, uh, Proverbs, I should say, there are six things the Lord hates, seven which are abomination to him. Now, in Greek poetry, when you said, there are three things that da-da-da-da, four things that da, the fourth thing is what, the seventh thing is the most important. There are six things God hates, seven things he detests, the seventh is the bell ringer underline that? And in Proverbs, 
The seventh thing on a list that includes murderers is the one who sows dissension among brothers. Number one. That's the most disconcerting thing. Not that that pastor is going to have to warn him. It's that the Lord is saying, this is like something that I have zero tolerance for. And so, you, and we already know why. Uh, because God sees the danger to the health and well-being of his work and his people for whom he died, right? So Paul's saying, Titus, after you deal with him a few times and see he's resolved to go his own way and do his own thing, let him go. Let him go. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Um, that's the best thing to do. Have nothing to do with Christian writers who are planting seeds of discord in you. There's so many bloggers saying things they ought not to say that sound hip and cool and very popular. They don't know why they're doing it other than for popularity, for greed, uh, for ease or convenience. Uh, but it's uh, something the Bible just says to avoid, have nothing to do with. That's wisdom because of the danger. And then uh, closing out in verse 11, he says there are sad, sad consequences. And here's how to think about the person who now has left the fellowship, left the dinner tables, no longer uh, having a tight relationship to you in the family. God <clears throat> wants to, believe it or not, even though the words are harsh, he wants to encourage you. He wants to encourage you. And here's how to think about these people. And it's the, the purpose of verse 11 is to remove the sting. Because he knows he's, he's talking to people uh, who have experience in their families and in their pews, in their churches. They love these people or they love them. They're connected to them by marriage or by family or, or they went to the same church. And now suddenly there's been a what happened and they're missing and there's negativity and finger pointing and all kinds of things. And so verse 11 says, heads up, I'm about to take the sting and the onus, the responsibility of this estrangement off of your truth-telling, truth-loving, faithful souls and place the blame where it squarely belongs. That's what's going on. Now, the first thing he says here, he says, um, number one, that they're warped. Now, here, here's what he's saying. And the Bible backs this up. When you love truth and avoid, uh, don't listen to your conscience, and you uh, reject the truth and suppress, suppress, and, and God is speaking to you and you keep sidestepping him, you do damage to the lens of your conscience that God has given all human beings. You damage yourself. The word means to be twisted inside out. So something has happened to reverse your ability to tell what's true and what's not true. So to be inside out means now 
The truth that sets people free is the falsehood that binds everybody. And now the people outside who don't know Christ, who are perishing, they're the good guys and they're the ones who truly love. You see, because the twisting, that word means, or the inside outness, your viewfinder went like this from constant deflection of truth that the Holy Spirit gave you. You'll damage yourself. You won't know which way is up. The good guys are the bad guys. God's values are stupid and worthless and uh, oppressive. And now they're enlightened and we're unenlightened. They're the loving ones and we're the hateful ones. Warped. He says they got warped. He's not name calling. He's describing what happened to a soul that constantly loved a lie and hated the truth. So that's what that word means. And then he says, they are warped and they're sinful. Here's what it is. He's saying, it's willful. This isn't just, hey, let's agree to disagree. No, 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 no. We can agree to disagree about philosophy of ministry style, about how to construct a church, how many songs, what kind of songs. There's a thousand things Christians can agree to disagree. But in this case, when you throw out the truth of God, you are sinning. This isn't about, so he's saying, hey, you guys, this is more serious than you think. This isn't about, he has an opinion. And you're being so close-minded and they're being so open-minded. No, they're not being open-minded. They are sinning because they are violating their own conscience than the word of God. So you have to understand that. Oh, yeah, let's agree to disagree a, a lot about everything that's non-essential. But the second you defy, here's what they're doing. They're saying to God, people who say the Bible's now a story, that's a sin to God, right? Amen. There's no more hell. There's no more hell isn't something, well, let's agree to disagree, you know. What do you want for lunch? In and out? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. There's no more hell. And, and, how, and now he's saying to you, how can you believe that a God, oh, no, no, no. That's why I can have nothing to do with you, sir. Because you're upsetting immature Christians who will, who will buy that humanistic uh, kind of human logic that isn't from God. And then he goes on, I think, finally, oh, this is the best one. Doesn't sound like it, but he says they're self-condemned. What does that mean? It speaks to the question who's responsible for the missing seat in the fellowship. Who did that to him? Titus did it to him. Titus got in his face and told him, listen, there is a hell. And no, you can't sleep with your girlfriend and be a Christian. And yes, Jesus is God. And so he got up and Pastor Titus made him leave. No, it's not Pastor Titus's fault. 
It's not the church's fault. It's not you at your Thanksgiving table that said, you know what? I don't want to talk about those kinds of things at Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. And then they said next year, you know what? We're not going to your Thanksgiving because you're so narrow-minded. He says, I want you to know, I know you're hurting, and I know they're blaming you, but I want you to know they did it to themselves. They are self-condemned just means they aren't to blame for how they are estranged and the relational strain that you're now dealing with because you remained faithful, you remained loving the truth in, in spite of the cost, in spite of the, the ruffled feathers and the relational fallout and all the things that were said to you, you remain that way and you're estranged or there's tension of, this, of some kind. He says, it's okay. It's not your fault. They did this. They wandered. It was willful. It was sinful. They damaged their own souls and consciences. They went their way because they wanted to do it. And yeah, they're going to blame you a little bit, but it's okay. Hey, if you were obnoxious, you lost your cool, you acted like not a Christian, own that. Own that. But in the end, they departed because they wanted to depart. We don't hate them. We love them. And here's the good news. God says this. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will uh, return to you, says the Lord. Uh, Zechariah 1.3. God is after them. You know, we may be avoiding them because he told us to avoid them. But uh, trust me, the Holy Spirit is on them. Like ugly on a toad. I mean, he, he's on <laughs> ugly toads. Toads are ugly. That means he's really on it. All right, praise the Lord. Okay, I'll skip it next service then. <laughs> there, uh, he's on it. He's on it. He loves them. Uh, he says, return faithless people. That was Zechariah 1.3. Return faith, faithless or faceless people. I will cure you of your backsliding and so you can wander from the church and wander from your friends but you can't wander from the all searching all knowing all loving God who wills that none perish he's after all of them and all of us in the pews let's just read the closing remarks because we can't put Titus to bed without this now, still making travel arrangements as he signs off the letter. I'm just going to read this. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Artemis we know nothing about, only there. And Tychicus, he's been all through the book of, uh, all through the book of Corinthians. He's carrying letters. He's a, he's a partner. Uh, Tychicus to you. I don't know which one yet. To relieve you, Titus, they're on Crete, but I'm going to send one of these guys. Do your best to come to me. When, when one of these guys comes, I'm in western, uh, northwest uh, Greece. I'll be there. That's where I plan to be because I've decided to spend the winter there. Do everything you can do to help Zenus, the lawyer, only there. We know nothing about him except, guess what? He's a lawyer. <laughs> and Apollos 
who, oh man, that, that guy's all over the book of Acts and all over the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's the dude who spoke so well and was mighty in the scriptures. Uh, help them. They're passing through Crete. Uh, help them on their way. See if they need anything. Our people got to learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then he says, grace be to all of you. Listen, greet those who love you, love us in the faith. A final, do you see it? Are, are you on to what he's saying there? Greet those who love us in the faith. Listen, Christian. If you love the truth, people who love the truth love you. And if you don't love the truth, you don't appreciate those who do. So he says, for those who love us in the faith, Greet them. And then for, as for the rest, it is what it is. We stand with the truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these words that encourage us in a world that is in the last times and there's a massive apostasy at hand, a massive dumbing down and amending the, the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would cause us to rise to the occasion and do these hard things, Lord, loving things, and be safe and provide a safe haven for the haven for those we love. In Christ's name. If for any reason you checked out during any part of the sermon, I want to get your attention for one minute. Do not leave without hearing this. We are talking about professed Christians who are constant troublemakers in this regard. We're not talking about broken unbelievers <laughs> because we'd have to avoid the whole world <laughs> and practically everybody we know as everybody's broken, including us to some degree, right? So do not think for a second, he's saying avoid, you know, troublesome relationships. No, you got it. It's the professed Christian bent on rattling your Christian beliefs. That's the problem over and over again. All right. Father God, thank you so much for your love. Now, just keep us clear, God, in our heads and hearts so we could be profitable and useful in Jesus' name. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.